Life is full of experiences that push us out of our comfort zone. One of these times for me was about ten and a half years ago when it came time to buy an engagement ring for my wife, Shelly. You see, I didn't know much about jewelry at that point. Here are the three things I did know, though, about engagement rings. First of all, many engagement rings are made out of gold. Secondly, most of them have diamonds in them. And third, if you're going to propose to a woman, you better show up with a ring. So these are the things I knew. And so I wanted to propose to Shelly. And so one Saturday morning, I set off to a local mall where there were several jewelry stores. But I didn't want to go alone. You know, there's safety in numbers. So I took my roommate. So here we have two guys in their early to mid-20s who know pretty much nothing about jewelry except those things I just mentioned, and we're heading into a jewelry store. Now, we learned a lot about diamonds that morning, and through the course of, of the next few days, a few hours that morning, a little bit more in the coming days, I was able to purchase a nice ring for Shelly and to propose to her a little while later. Now, one of the things that I recognize from my time in jewelry stores is that when you're in a jewelry store, you are surrounded by bright, sparkly diamonds. That's just the way it is. And when you look at diamonds, have you ever wondered why diamonds are so sparkly? Why do they radiate light so much? Did you know that when a diamond is taken out of the ground, they really are not that sparkly? They don't look all that special in their, in their initial form. But the reason the diamonds become so sparkly, so brilliant, so, so shiny, and even so beautiful is because of the way that jewelers cut different facets and different angles and different faces into the diamond. There is a science behind it that causes the light to shine through the diamond in just certain ways to make them radiate light. And there are many different cuts and faces on a diamond. For instance, uh, a cut called a brilliant cut, which is one of the oldest uh, cuts of diamonds, early, at least in the modern uh, diamond industry, has 58 facets on it, 58 different faces and different angles to radiate light just right. And there are other cuts of diamonds that have many more facets on them, even into the hundreds, in order to, to shine light in a special way to grab people's Attention is part of what makes a diamond so beautiful, this multifaceted nature of diamonds. Now, the gospel, in many ways, is like a diamond. Because just like you can look at a diamond from different angles and see all these different facets that add to its beauty, so in the same way with the gospel, if you look at the gospel from different angles, you see different facets of the gospel's beauty that help show why the gospel is so amazing and even so breathtaking. Through the course of this series that we're in right now called Crosswords, we are examining some of these different facets or different angles that you can view the gospel from. Let me give you a few examples of the multifaceted gospel. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the idea of atonement, which looks at the gospel from the perspective of, of the temple or from the sacrificial system in which Christ is the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. Last week, we looked at the idea of justification, which looks at the gospel from the legal perspective, how Christ is the one who secures our acquittal and our righteousness before God. Today, we are looking at the topic of redemption that looks at it more from a marketplace perspective, especially that of a slave market where Christ is our redeemer who purchases our freedom. And then next week, we're looking at the topic of adoption. 
Adoption looks at the gospel from sort of a family perspective, where God, where Jesus is God's son, who makes it possible for us to also become sons and daughters of the living God. So we used to have a multifaceted gospel, and looking at the gospel from all these different angles helps us to see with fresh eyes the beauty and the glory of what God has done for us through Christ. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. We spent the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 3. Uh, we're, uh, we're not going to spend much time there today, but I do want to, as you're turning to Colossians 1, I do want to just cover a couple of verses in Romans 3 to help set the stage for us on this multifaceted gospel and on the topic of redemption. In Romans 3, beginning in the middle of verse 22, you don't have to turn there, just you can listen while you're turning to Colossians 1. Paul says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So here in this, this dense theological passage, you have three major crosswords that we've already looked at. We have the idea of being justified freely by his grace, the, the idea of justification. It came through the sacrifice of atonement that Christ offered. That's the idea of atonement. And then we see that we receive this grace uh, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So you have this topic of redemption that we are looking at today, specifically out of Colossians 1. Now I invite you to pray with me, um, and then we're going to dig into this topic. Our Father, we thank you that you offer us redemption that you don't leave us slaves to sin, that you don't leave us dead in our sins and transgressions, but through Christ we can have new life. We can have freedom. And I pray that today as we open your word together, as we reflect on our lives and reflect on the power of the gospel, that you will help us to live in increasingly, increasing freedom in our lives, freedom to serve Christ, freedom to live the way that you designed us to live with abundant and eternal life. So we pray that you will be our teacher today in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get to the topic of Colossians 1, I just want to cover a few basics about redemption. Now, redemption, in its very basic form, means to release from bondage. To release from bondage. You look at all these different pictures up there on the screen. Les Miserables and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the blind side and this slave that's been freed. And you have the exodus. You have this car that's been restored from the junkyard to something really special. What do all these have in common? They've all been redeemed in some way. They were all subject to bondage, whether it was the decay of a car, whether it was in bondage to slavery, whether it was um, just in bondage in Les Mis, Jean Valjean, just through his past. And so many errors he made, so many sins he committed. You have the blind side, someone who was just out there on the streets. People had cast him off as worthless and helpless. But the family took him in and essentially redeemed him. Now, when you look at this topic of redemption, we have to recognize that redemption is a primary theme throughout Scripture, arguably the primary theme in the Bible. The the greatest form of redemption in Scripture, apart from Jesus, is the Exodus. Back when Israel had been slaves in Egypt, they were slaves to Pharaoh without hope, without a future. And then God redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery, brought them into the promised land, and he made them his very own chosen special people. And then as God established the nation of Israel, 
He wove within the foundations of their nation topics of redemption. It's really amazing when you see all the ways that God wove redemption through Israel's story, Israel's history, Israel's laws. And a part of their, their nation was this expectation of a coming Redeemer sometime in the future, the Messiah, who would be a Savior. And that Savior came in the form of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to now turn to Colossians chapter 1, uh, which shows what Christ has accomplished for us. And Colossians 1 is really focused on the gospel, especially how the gospel has been bearing fruit in the church in Colossae, but also around the world. And Paul sums it all up in verses 13 and 14. He says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so this idea of redemption talks about the transfer from some negative status over to some positive status. Now, the negative status that's being talked about here could be called the tyranny of darkness. Now, literally, it says the power of darkness, but this power of darkness is not merely a neutral power. It's certainly not a benevolent power. It's actually a very sinister and evil power that enslaves people. It's a power in the same way that the Nazis were a power in Europe in the late 1930s and early 1940s, and a very oppressive power, a destructive power, an evil power. Now, many English translations uh, translate it as the dominion of darkness or the domain of darkness. And, and I, I like the idea of dominion because it, it kind of captures the sinister nature of this darkness. But I like the idea of the tyranny of darkness even more because tyranny captures the act of uh, evil oppression as a, as, that characterizes this darkness. Now, Paul in this passage doesn't really explain much about the characteristics of this tyranny of darkness. So for just a moment, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just follow along on the screen. But I'm going to read the first three verses of Ephesians 2, which covers more, in more detail this tyranny of darkness that, that characterizes uh, really this broken world in so many ways. Paul writes, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we see here listed three evil oppressors. You have our sinful nature called the flesh. You have the world, which by nature is just going with the flow of the world. We are going to be drawn away from God. And then you have Satan who is actively opposing us as well. These are evil oppressors who are all working together to keep us in bondage. And, and this is why it's called the power of darkness, because it's a power that is actively at work in our lives, oftentimes unbeknownst to, to people in this world, but it's an active power that traps us in this tyranny of darkness. And not only traps us, it actually kills us. That, that is why Paul starts out uh, this passage and saying you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You think about something that is dead, there is nothing that something that is dead can do to help itself. Something that is dead is hopeless apart from the intervention 
of God. Now, my family, a couple weeks ago, had something that was very sad that, that happened, especially uh, with my parents, but then it affects us as well. My parents' dog died. Her name was Maggie. She was about an eight-year-old black lab. She had a thyroid issue early in life, so she grew to about 135 pounds of pure muscle. So a very large dog, but a very gentle, loving dog. And Micaiah formed such a, a close bond with Maggie. I mean, all these pictures that are up there were taken just at Christmas time when we were there just for a few days. He loved to feed her. He loved to, to hug her. He, he asked for a picture of her for Christmas so that he could put it in his room. Maggie, Maggie died because she got into some raccoon poison that a neighbor put out. Dogs really cannot handle raccoon poison. Maggie survived longer than any other dog that the vet had ever seen who got into raccoon poison. She said most, most dogs don't even make it to the vet. The one dog that did uh, before Maggie died at the doorway. Maggie survived for something like 45 minutes or another hour at the vet. They finally had to put her to sleep, but not before trying IVs and shots and, and ice packs and, and cold towels to try to cool her fever down. But nothing helped. And she died. I mean, very sad. Now, when, again, when something is dead, there's really no hope for it any longer. Now, Micaiah, he loved to give Maggie treats. And any other food scraps, he would try to scrounge food from the table. Um, it was like, hey, can we give this to Maggie? Now, imagine that Micaiah went there after Maggie died and waved before Maggie her favorite dog treats. Or even the stake. Would Maggie have responded at all? No. Because Maggie was dead. And that is the nature of something when it's dead. That there's nothing he can do to respond to anything. There's nothing he can do to help, or help itself. And that is a picture of our reality when we are living under the tyranny of darkness. That we are dead spiritually because sin kills us. This is why... Back in Romans chapter 3, why Paul said, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are dead spiritually in our natural state. There is nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. Nothing that we can do to turn to God. Nothing we can do to earn his favor. Sin is very much like raccoon poison. That kills us spiritually and it separates us from God. Now, we are obviously all still alive physically, but spiritually, in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we are dead. And on top of that, even for people who are still alive physically, they are also enslaved by sin when they are living under the tyranny of darkness. Jesus said in John 8 34 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul said pretty much the same thing in Romans chapter 6. That if we sin, we are slaves to sin. If you want to argue with that, I have a challenge for you. Try going a week without sinning. Or if you want a harder challenge, just try going the rest of your life. If you think it's so easy. And, and you know, even a week, I think even a day is challenging. Because you have to recognize sin is not merely our actions. It also is manifested in our words. It gets deeper than that in our thoughts, even in our motives. If there's any bit of pride or selfishness mixed in with our motives for why we're doing something, 
that taints it. That's sin. That's why it says in Isaiah 64 that all of our righteous acts are like, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God because they're stained by sin. So sin enslaves us. I want to share with you a couple of quotes that come from um, Christian leaders, both past and present, that just helps capture graphically the tyranny of darkness that we are under through sin. John Piper has said that sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens your spiritual senses so that you rip your soul to shreds and don't even feel it. You see, leprosy was a disease that would kill the nerves. And so when someone would get hurt or when they'd scratch themselves, they they may start bleeding or they may have a body part that's just falling apart, but they don't even recognize it because their nerves, their feeling is dead. And John Piper says that sin is the same way that it kills us. So that essentially, through pursuing sin, through living under this tyranny of darkness, we rip our soul to shreds, but we don't even feel it. As we will get to in a minute, we do sort of feel some of the effects of that, but at the same time, we don't recognize why it's going on. Another man from back in the 1800s, a theologian named W.G.T. Shedd, he said that sin is the suicidal action of the human will against itself. That sin is like suicide against ourselves. That, that we, as we make choices, um, I mean, it is, it enslaves us. It pulls us away from God. It destroys us, both inside and outside. And we have to recognize as we look at these realities that sin cuts us off from satisfying and joyful life. It cuts us off from satisfying and joyful life. Now, when you look at some forms of sin, they seem kind of like fun. But at the same time, we have to recognize that even though sin may make some grand promises about bringing us pleasure and satisfaction and joy, in the end, it cannot ultimately fulfill those promises. And one of the realities is that sin drives us to worshiping things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. I think, for instance, of a quote from David Foster Wallace. He was an award-winning author. Back in 2005, he gave a commencement address at a college. I want to read you a part of uh, his commencement address. He's not a Christian, but there's a lot of truth in this. David Foster Wallace said, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will, never, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, as I said, David Foster Wallace was certainly not a Christian, but I think he understood the emptiness of pursuing worldly things as a source of satisfaction, as a source of significance and identity and security. And unfortunately, he understood it all too well because in his despair, as he recognized these realities of the tyranny of darkness, he committed suicide in 2008. 
That's the reality of when you are pursuing worldly things, when you recognize, and also the despair that comes from pursuing those and realizing they don't satisfy. Now, under the influence of this tyranny of darkness, so many people today are walking around with a sense of insecurity, a sense of dread, a sense of fear about the future. They're walking around with a deep sense of pain or guilt or shame, perhaps about something in their past or even in their present. I think of Madonna. Uh, she is someone who has achieved wealth, success, fame, notoriety. But listen to what Madonna once said. She said, all my life, I've always been trying to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. Then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I'm, I've become somebody with a capital S, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, a woman who's achieved great worldly success, but she's saying she's on this performance treadmill of having to continue to prove herself over and over and over, and she so often feels inadequate. And this is a feeling... That so many, so many of us in our world experience even on a regular basis. There's a survey that showed that about 95% of our society says that they feel a significant sense of inadequacy on a regular basis. 95%. Stuart Briscoe, who's the longtime pastor of Elmbrook Church, he, he said, I don't have a difficulty believing that figure. The only surprise is the other 5%. Why aren't those guys feeling inadequate? And I think that when, when I look at myself and when I think about conversations I've had with people through the years, it is true that so many people are walking around with, us with the feeling of inadequacy or of insecurity. And so we come back to this idea of, of the power of, of this tyranny of darkness. And there are all these psychological effects that, that, that occur from it. In addition to many practical negative ramifications as well. And the result of all this is that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to escape from this tyranny of darkness. Now, psychologists and counselors, they can help us work through some things. But at the same time, apart from Christ, there is not an ultimate solution that anyone else has to offer us. Because when we are under the power of the tyranny of darkness, it's like being in a POW camp with no hope of escape. It is like being on death row where we have committed crimes that we know that we have committed and there's no getting out from the death penalty. It's like being trapped in quicksand and drowning in that because we were so arrogant that we thought we could pass through it without succumbing to it. Or it's like being a slave in the American South in the early 1800s with practically no hope of freedom. This tyranny of darkness is a terrible reality that has grabbed onto this world and held it captive. But there is hope. There is hope. I mean, it would be pretty sad if we stopped right there, wouldn't it? There are two precious words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. The words, but God. Once you were deserving of wrath, once you were dead in your sins and transgressions, once you were following the ways of this world, but God, because of his great love for us and his rich mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then turning back to Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is talking about rescue and redemption. There is nothing that we could do to rescue or to redeem ourselves. We are instead rescued and, and redeemed into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves, Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of being brought into the, uh, the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, it shows us that, that God's kingdom that we can be redeemed into is a kingdom on the basis of love. That love is a primary characteristic of God's kingdom. And the idea of, of the Son he loves also demonstrates God's love for us. Because it shows that God the Father deeply loves God the Son, yet God the Father was willing to allow his own Son to be sacrificed so that we could be redeemed. Now, if you look at the topic of redemption throughout Scripture, there are a few themes, uh, sort of a paradigm that you see carrying out over and over and over in the topic of redemption. There are three main aspects. First of all, the bondage from which a person or an object or, or, some, or an animal needs to be redeemed from. Secondly, there is a payment of a redemption price. And thirdly, there's an intermediary, a person usually acting to secure the redemption. Those are three things that are needed in practically all redemptions. And we see that, we, that the bondage was this tyranny of darkness. And the second and third thing here are all focused on Christ, that Christ was himself the payment of the redemption price through his death on the cross. And on top of that, he was also the intermediary interceding between us and God. Jesus understood that his purpose for coming to this world was to redeem us. This is why in Mark 10, 45, out of Jesus' own lips, he said, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many, a payment for on our behalf. Or out of 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So while slaves could be redeemed with money, we had to be redeemed through the blood of Christ. And we have the privilege of being redeemed out of the tyranny of darkness, characterized by sin and death and pain and sorrow and suffering and futility and dissatisfaction and lack of joy to be redeemed into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, this does point to the idea of a kingdom. It's still a domain. And some people would say, well, I don't really want to be a part of a kingdom anymore. I don't want to submit to Christ's lordship because that doesn't seem like freedom to me. Many people in our society would say, well, freedom means that I can do anything and everything I want without any sort of repercussions or negative consequences. But what happens if we try to pursue some sort of freedom apart from submission to the Lordship of Christ? What happens then is that we are submitting ourselves once again to the tyranny of darkness, to sin, to the world, and to Satan. Things operate best when they're operating in the way that they were designed. And we were designed to operate in relationship and in submission to God. 
And it's when we are living in his life-giving kingdom and according to his realities that we are most free. Now, back ten and a half years ago when I gave Shelly that ring that I bought, I went shopping first on a Saturday morning. can't remember which day of the week I bought it, maybe a Wednesday or something like that. But when I gave her that ring, it set in process or set in motion a process that transformed our lives as the two of us became one. In the same way, when someone receives the gospel, this multifaceted, beautiful gospel into their lives, it begins a process of transforming them, of redeeming their lives. And so we have to recognize that when we are redeemed, this changes who we are. It changes our identity. It changes our status so that we are no longer slaves and we are no longer dead, but that we are alive and we are free. And therefore, if we are free and alive, we should no longer be living as slaves. Jesus said in John eight thirty six, that if, you, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Or Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by any yoke of slavery. Now in Galatians, the yoke of slavery that Paul was talking about was slavery to, God, to, the, to the Old Testament law, thinking that by doing good works, by obeying the law, then you're going to earn God's favor. He said that's slavery. That's anti-gospel. But there are many other forms of slavery that we can continue to submit ourselves to. For instance, uh, the slavery of the expectation of others. The others have expectations of us and we feel like we need to live up to those. Or we can be enslaved to the fear of God's condemnation. We need to remember that when we've been redeemed, there's no condemnation for us because Christ absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. We can be in slavery to the values of the world, that the world says, you know what, to be, to be successful, to be significant, you need to make a lot of money, you need to be beautiful, or you need to be successful. We, we can easily succumb to slavery to those things, but redemption means that we can be, be set free from that slavery. I think about, for me, it is so easy to get caught up in my sense of identity and value in how I do in preaching a sermon or how the church is doing. But, but when I am set free from those things, my value is not tied to how many people compliment my, compliment my sermon or how many people are attending the church or how anything else is doing because my value is based on Christ and his view of me. When you have been redeemed and you're no longer living in slavery to the tyranny of darkness and his values, your value is not based on how beautiful you think you are. Or how many comments your Facebook post gets. Or what kind of car you drive or how much money you make. Your value is based not on what you do, but on what Christ has already done for us and how he views us. And on the fact that we are redeemed. And we need to, as Christians, be preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over and over. Preaching that gospel that there is no shame in Christ. That when we are in Christ, he loves us. That we are approved and we are accepted by him. Again, that we are not accepted on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of God's love for us. And this is really transforming. And it's really amazing when you see redemption at work in someone's life. It is a beautiful thing. One of the coolest stories of redemption that I've seen is in a woman named Pearl Willis, who I met in inner city of Chicago on a couple of missions trips there uh, back about 14, 15 years ago. 
She goes by Miss Pearl. That, that is her on the left there. Her daughter Octavia um, is there with her. I, that's just a picture I took in their kitchen. Um, Miss Pearl has quite the story of redemption. Miss Pearl, Pearl Willis, when she was younger, she ran away from home. By the age of 16, she was pregnant for the first time. And then for the next 17 years after that, she was a prostitute and a drug dealer. She was so high in heroin during her pregnancy with Octavia, pictured there, that she says she didn't even realize she was pregnant until she gave birth. I mean, her, it's a sad reality that she was living in. But then in her early to mid-30s, she came to Christ. And God began to transform her life. And soon after that, she began a ministry, a daycare for the children of teen mothers. It's a free daycare. The only requirement is that if you're going to bring your children there, you need to attend a weekly Bible study. And what she wanted to do, in addition to introducing people to Christ, is, is to help break that cycle of teenage pregnancy and especially unemployment that occurs from that. She wanted the, the, the mothers of, of the children she was taking care of to be able to finish high school and to even pursue further education if they so choose so that they can get an employment and get out of that cycle. And through the years, there have been somewhere in the range of 300 mothers who have come through that program in various stages. With her help, about 50 women have graduated from high school and 23 have gone to college. And, and one of the things I remember most about her is her love for Christ. Jesus just radiated through her and, and many, many people came to faith in Christ through her. I remember when I was on my second missions trip there for a summer, I spent a few weeks working with her in, those, in the daycare, working on her house, stuff like that, driving around with her. Um, I remember how just before I moved in there, the final drug house in her block moved out. The drug dealers said, we're out of here. When she started the daycare, there were five drug houses on that one block. They dwindled down to only one, and then that last one disappeared, and then she bought that drug house that was right next door to her house to expand her daycare into. I mean, it's really a beautiful and powerful story of redemption. See, redemption is all about taking something that, that was, seemed worthless or broken or struggling or in bondage and bring it to new life. And again, many people in this world, they look at their lives and they think, what do I have to offer? I am broken. I'm scared. I'm inadequate. I'm insecure. But remember that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so if you are here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? There are so many things I wish that I could undo about the past. Poor decisions that, that I'm carrying so much guilt around uh, for. I want to encourage you to focus on Christ's redemption. To receive that gift of salvation. And if you want to learn more about that, want to talk with someone, want to pray th- with someone about that, I encourage you to talk with me or Pastor David after the service or after the service. We also have a prayer team up here who would love to be able to talk with you and pray with you about the redemption that Christ offers. Now, as I think about redemption, I think the people who are the hardest to redeem are not the people who have incredibly messy lives and know it like Miss Pearl. The people who I think are the hardest to redeem are the people who think they have it all together. The people who are the high achievers, who have a lot of worldly success, who don't really see a need for God or a need for a redeemer. 
Those are the ones who are the harder ones, I think, to redeem because they don't see again their need for a redeemer. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Oftentimes people focus on the younger son who, who ran away from his house and just squandered everything, made a lot of terrible decisions, but then was welcomed back into his household with grace and open arms. A powerful story of redemption out of a terrible place that he was in. But there is an older brother in that story as well who's oftentimes overlooked. The older brother was full of pride and arrogance and anger. That older brother in the parable represented the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders were the audience that Jesus was speaking to for the parable of the prodigal son. He was communicating to them about their arrogance. They thought they had it together. They didn't see their need for redemption. In the same way today, we may not have that many Jewish leaders walking around in arrogance in our culture, but we do have people who are intoxicated with their own success, who are full of pride. And if you're like me, someone who likes achievement, likes success, is driven by those things, it is so easy to get on this performance treadmill thinking that our value comes from what we do. But it doesn't, and that can never satisfy us. So when we rest in redemption and rest in the gospel, then we can get off that performance treadmill. Then our sense of well-being and value doesn't come from what we do, but what Christ has already done. And my prayer for each one of us is that as we look at the gospel, that we will not ignore the gospel, that we will not uh, take it for granted. But instead, as, as we see the beautiful and multifaceted gospel laid out before us by Jesus, that we will receive it, that we will enjoy it, that we will treasure it, and that we will let it redeem us and transform our lives. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you this morning as people who see the stains, at least in our lives, of this tyranny of darkness. That it's so easy to feel that sense of inadequacy, that sense of fear, that sense of, of shame. But Lord, we thank you for the redemption that's available to us through Christ. And I pray that you will be at work in each one of our lives and at work through us in other people's lives as well. In order to experience the power of redemption, the power of new life, the power of freedom. Lord, may we walk in freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from the expectations of others, freedom from shame and guilt. Walk in the freedom that's available to us through Christ. And we pray these things in gratitude in his name. Amen.